When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess. For elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Welcome back, Goldmine readers and listeners. This is Pat Prince, editor of Goldmine Magazine, and this is the Goldmine Podcast. This episode, we'll be talking about grunge, the music phenomenon in the 1990s. And we'll be talking to longtime contributor Dave Thompson, who just put out a paperback called The Grunge Diaries, Seattle, 1990-1994. Now, why does it end at 94? Well, Dave will tell you, but it's because right after Kurt Cobain's death, basically the grunge movement kind of tailed off. And I'll go into more details as we get into the podcast. But Dave lived in Seattle throughout the entire 90s. He got there in 1990 and lived the entire decade there. He was a he was a contributing editor to Alternative Press magazine and he reported on the entire grunge movement and this was going to all the clubs and detailing the releases, the press junkets, going to all the sorts of things that the grunge movement had to to offer and it was quite a scene and Dave this is why he made a diary of sorts and this is why that format works he would tell you about going to different clubs and why those clubs were important to the scene and they nurtured bands kind of like how Hamburg uh, nurtured the Beatles cuz they got these bands got to play on a consistent basis and they got to fine tune uh, you know, all their songs, and a lot of them, Dave will say that some of them that weren't the best bands made it, 
because they constantly played and performed within these clubs. And what's great about the book is that it has little sidebars on all the clubs. Now, a lot of them are gone, but it is like a travel guide. Um, if a lot of you New Yorkers, um, well, like me, get uh, kind of you know excited to read about the Mud Club and the CBGB back in the day, and this is the same sort of thing uh, going on here, is that you really get a sense of history. Now, Dave will also talk about, you know, the big bands, Nirvana and Soundgarden, but a lot of the smaller bands, bands that deserved better and bands that everyone thought were going to be huge, like Mother Love Bone, but unfortunately tragedy hit that band. So we're going to talk about grunge and talk about his book, The Grunge Diaries, which, by the way, can be purchased in Goldmine's store, shop.goldminemag.com. You could purchase it there. People like Dave who lived through the grunge movement in Seattle will really enjoy this, but you don't have to be someone who lived in Seattle in the 90s. You could read this book and really enjoy and get a sense of history. I mean, this is kind of a must-have for rock history aficionados because they feel you'll get a sense of really being there. So anyway, we'll be back after this message to talk to Dave Thompson about the Grunge Diaries. All right, welcome Dave Thompson. We're going to talk about your new book, The Grunge Diaries. Great, good to be here. So it's it's hard to imagine you living a grunge lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> it is, isn't it? Um, thankfully, I didn't. Um, I just happened to be in the right place at the wrong at the right time in the wrong shirt. <laughs> so you didn't dress grunge, but you were in. Um, no, uh, I don't know. It didn't really suit me. You know, I've, oh, always you, more, you picked, I've always you been more of a suit and tie boy. I think it was the right way to do this as a diary because you painted a vivid picture of what it was like to live in Seattle in going to the clubs. And it was an exciting time. And you you weren't, you know, you lived in London during exciting times, you know, yeah. you lived during the early glam 70s. You lived during the early punk movement in London. So, well, the early glam 70s, don't forget, I was still at school and relatively small. Um, punk was my first summer out of school. And it was indeed very exciting. And the interesting thing was, got to Seattle and sort of looked around, saw all these clubs, all these bands. And it was, I'd not seen so much activity since the late seventies. Mm. It's like everywhere you went, there was a new band that you'd not heard of. Some of whom were really good. Some of whom were absolutely dire, but right. they were all out there doing it. And a lot of the ones I thought were dire, other people loved. So what do I know? Well, sometimes the dire ones turned out to be good. They, after playing for a while, they found... Quite often the dire ones became the most successful, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> but you go there a little bit in your book. I mean, you know... Well, yes, but I think Candlebox really only get one mention. <laughs> they do, in a bit, yes. 
in the beginning. In fact, I, I when I was reading that, I, was, I had to remind myself, oh, yeah, Candlebox. Yeah. Um, I, had almost, was, I had forgotten it, about them. It was a fascinating time because if you went to one club and didn't really like, you know, the atmosphere, the DJ, the bartender, you just wandered to another club and there was always something happening. There were always bands playing. Right. And as I said, a lot of them, yeah, it was just like, you know, someone knew three chords, had three friends, put together a band and they got up there and they would make a god awful racket and either it was great or it was like okay i won't go and see them next until they're opening for someone else well it's interesting because it's almost like a it can't be like a tour diary if someone was took a time machine back there and wanted to uh, visit and travel right you mentioned you do a little do little sidebars on the clubs that's that was very, very deliberate because I thought of approaching the book as, you know, a straightforward pose and then they did this and then they did that. And it's like, no, that is so, so boring for something like this where you've got, I don't know how many bands I actually talk about in there, you know, several hundred. It would just get very, very, very confusing. So I thought just hit on events, gigs, record releases, as they happen, so that you can see, you can see everything building, evolving, and bands breaking through, and the sort of places they were playing, and the sort of people who were going, and you know the shops that were good, and the radio stations that were listenable, mm. and just give everything, you know, its own little moment in the in the sun, as it were. Well, I thought the clubs, I'm glad you did things on the clubs because they were just as important as the bands, right? They were probably more important because, you know, clubs can survive without bands, but bands can't or couldn't really survive without clubs. Right. And they don't, they never got mentioned like CBGB and, uh, you know, when those bands were interviewed, right? I mean, no, um, not really. I mean, when you hear interviews of Blondie or the, the Ramones, they mentioned CBGB or the Mud Club or... Yeah, and right. the London bands <laughs> will mention the Roxy. Right. But Seattle, I think because there were so many clubs and none of them really ascended to the spot, you know, to headline status. Right. Um, the Vogue is probably the one that I hear mentioned the most by people who weren't there. Because hmm. that's where Nirvana played their first ever show. And um, I mean, that in it was a really great club. But, you know, there were a lot of great clubs there. Was that the cl- which club had the best sound? That's it's um, I don't think best sound is really the way to put it. Russian, you would choose. Maybe the best scene. <laughs> Again, there wasn't a club, no particular club had its own scene. I mean, the one places that went for, you know, say a gothic audience or an industrial audience. Right. And yeah, there were a few of those later. They did have a certain unique ambience. Hmm. But amongst the rest of the clubs, there wasn't really a scene. It was, you know, you had your favorites, the Crocodile, Vogue, wherever. But the bands you liked played everywhere. You know, one day they would be at, you know, the Crocodile. The next day they'd be, you know, in a university building. And Hmm. the next day they'd be in a park. 
Well, you do give, so you give smaller bands their due in the Grunge Diaries. That's pretty cool. This is not a book just about the bands that made it, like Nirvana. That was crucial because no scene exists only for the bands that make it out. You know, there's right. everybody else, the supporting cast is far more important. You know, it'd be like going to see a Tom Hanks movie and it's only Tom Hanks in it. It's like, well, yeah, but you're talking to yourself <laughs> a lot. Um, <clears throat> so I wanted to give all, all the little bands that I loved, I wanted to get in there because you know, no one else has ever written about the Wasters, Jessamine, Quiverpus, mm-hmm. all these wonderful, sick and wrong. You never, no one ever writes about them. And it's like, they were just as important in their own way as Nirvana, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Alice, etc. They and, just didn't get out of Seattle. And some of these bands, like you talk about the Melvins, mm-hmm. they influenced uh, yeah. bands like Nirvana. And the Melvins are a survivor, but they never got the commercial success of the Nirvana. No, which is a shame. I mean, I, I can see why. I mean, you play Melvin's albums and you can't imagine them in rotation on you know, Hot Rock FM or MTV. Right. But for the people who love the Melvins, they really love the Melvins. Yes. Whereas Nirvana, I think people could love them or they could just like them and, you know, tap their toes to lithium. Right. And, you know, be happy buying Nevermind. There was more, there was also a pop sensibility with the uh, punk sensibility. Yes. Because yeah. a lot of this stuff was, I mean, I do hear people say grunge, really, it's just heavy metal or hard rock, right? But, no, it, it has a lot of punk sensibility in it because... It, I mean, it was its own creature. I mean, obviously, you can look at its antecedents and say punk, uh, metal, hair metal, um, you know, classic rock. Right. But it's like when you took... They didn't take every element and they didn't necessarily take the most obvious elements and put them in a pot, you know, jumped up and down on it and came out with something that really did not sound like anything we'd heard before. Right. Which was, you know, quite an achievement for what most people thought was an Indian village on the edge of the world. Well, (laughs) plus the fact we were in the midst of the hair metal uh, trend, right? Yeah, we desperately needed something to knock that away but we were also if you remember the state of college radio and mtv in 1990 1991 no disrespect to most of the people i'm going to mention but it was all edie brickell rem um robin hitchcock people like that it was these nice grown-up musicians Mm. And they were all up there being very mature, well, apart from Robin Hitchcock, who was, he was being silly in a mature manner, mm. you know, making us laugh with his 1960s puns. But everybody else was so goddamn serious and so, oh, look at me, I'm very intelligent. I'm losing my religion. 
I said, I don't care if you're losing your religion. Yeah. Tell us about your libido and your mosquito and things. <laughs> and that was, the, you know, that was the big difference. It wiped away a lot of those very po-faced grown-ups and gave us a bunch of squalling, screaming, snotty-nosed kids again. But it also, these bands weren't like the hair metal bands talking about chicks, dude, and uh, fast cars, man. <laughs> yeah, I must, I don't think any grunge song ever, any grunge band ever wrote a song about how great it was to play rock and roll. True. And how they're going to rock and roll all night. <laughs> or at least until bedtime. Um, yeah, it was, it shot down a lot of, of pompousness and a lot of idiocy and again you know some of the some of the bands were you know they were all right in their place and at the time but it was nice to get something very you know, very different and very entertaining something that you actually wanted to like grow your hair and run up to people in the street and go Rah! and then run away <laughs> you, know, you did not do that after listening to rem Right, you wanted to cut your jeans at the knees. Yeah, and you know, <coughs> I didn't, of course. But um, well, it's it, like going it, it against the glam, right? The glam at the time where you yeah. wanted to look as yeah. And it it was good teenaged music. Yep. And that was the thing that struck me first was, yeah. The early bands that I actually interviewed in Seattle and saw were still kind of a hangover of the more grown-up end of things. Mm. But, you know, they radically, or they rapidly um, disclevered. It's a good word, isn't it? Mm. They rapidly disclevered and just became fun. And at the same time, you had bands like Sick and Wrong coming up who were running around setting fire to nachos and making horrible noises. And they had a girl singer who wore a 10 inch dildo hanging down, which she used to offer to members of the audience. Sounds like Wendy O. Williams. Uh, <laughs> it was Wendy O. Williams on steroids. <laughs> um, yeah, they, I mean, they were just so much fun to watch and the audience was fun to watch. And if no. you didn't want to have your eardrums battered, you went to see um, Jim Rose Circus Sideshow. Mm. You know, with I remember them. hanging things from bits you don't normally want to hang things from. Wow, I remember them being, yes, I do remember. Yeah, and you know, that was entertaining. I mean, they were playing the same venues as, as the bands. Now that Cameron Crowe went and filmed in singles, the Jim Rose sideshow were probably there the night before. That's Dang interesting <laughs> that you mentioned singles. <laughs> mm, yes. He tried Fun. to cash in on that uh, grunge wave. No, that's cruel. That is very cruel. Um, <laughs> I mean, he was in Seattle at the time. He was friends with a lot of people. He was you know, one of the friends of Andrew Wood, the singer with Mother Love Bone who died. Um, um, he, was, okay. he, he was around and his vision, apparently, uh, you can only go by what he says, but his vision was, you know, they were sitting there, it was so pretty much the night of, I, mean, I think it was the night of after Andrew's funeral. 
and they, they were all sitting in the room together and he just thought, I want to make a movie about friendship. Hmm. And so, you know, he shot it in Seattle because I think that's where he lived and that's where the people he wanted in the movie lived or a lot of the people. Mm -hmm. But somehow, because Seattle was rising, it got twisted by the machine. Yes. And what should have been just a fun, you know, a fun, slightly edgy rom-com took on this vast aura of being the last word in being grunge. Right. It was, and that's why I should say it wasn't him. It was more It like wasn't what the film history. wanted. If the, under any normal circumstances, it would have just been another when Harry met Sally. Right. Um, what's the one with um, her from Cheers with the blind ferret? Um, it would have just been yeah, a fun rom-com. Rom -com. <laughs> Polly, yes. Along yeah. came Polly. That's right. I love right. that. Well, no, I love that. That's ferret. a good movie. Um, <clears throat> much better than uh, the others you mentioned. Um, yes. But yeah, I... It's interesting you mentioned uh, Mother Love Bone in the book. You claim that they were the band that everyone thought were going to be the next big thing. Yeah. They, you know, they had the deal. They had the look. They had the sound. Um, you know, they looked great. They moved great. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't to be. Well, and they're it, being they, promoted, too, very well. Yeah. They're being marketed. <clears throat> Um, marketing could probably have been better. Their first American tour was a little bit of a disaster. But I think if they had actually survived to get the album out, things might have been slightly different in the future. Um, you know, for better and for worse. You know, for one thing, we, would, we wouldn't have got Pearl Jam. Yeah. Oh, dear. <laughs> I... I happen to like Pearl Jam, not their first three albums, but I think they got better with time. Mm. Um, I think it's one of the worst names. Um, but then again, I think Led Zeppelin's the best name. So I, I don't know. Pearl Jam. I don't even know where to go with that. Pearl Jam to me, uh, the sexual innuendo is just awful. Yes, but... I you know, I remember I was wearing a Mother Love Bone shirt and someone came out to me. What an awful name. Hmm. Well, look what Pearl Jam. <laughs> yeah. I, but, you know, is that the name or is that just your filthy mind? Maybe it's my filthy mind. Yes. I or always or maybe, maybe I'm just, a, you know, a Victorian snob and I'm thinking. There know. could be that as well. <laughs> <laughs> I was never a Pearl Jam fan. Uh, I must admit, I liked Mother Love. Oh, well, by your reaction, <laughs> I, I tried to hide it. <laughs> but I saw them a few times early, and they were one of those bands. I just, oh dear, they're doomed. And really? suddenly, they're you know the second biggest thing in the city. It's like, how did that happen? MTV. Yeah. But they were, it's not like they were photogenic or make great videos. Yeah, still the only Pearl Jam song I could sing if I was disposed to sing is Opera Man's version of was it Jeremy or Even Flow or something. 
Yeah, the one that goes hee haw yabby 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 yabba. That's pretty good. <laughs> and it's like that's the only one I know. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I heard them all at the time incessantly. So you you name a lot of bands that never made it. Can never made you gotta it. pick all these bands, right? One band for the listener. Mm-hmm. If you had to pick and turn a listener onto what which band would it be? It depends what the listener likes, quite honestly, because the beauty of the Seattle scene, oh, I hate that phrase, but the beauty of Seattle at that time, unlike any other emergent musical, what we now refer to as a genre, is there was no single specific sound. If you were into prog, you could find prog bands playing. If you were into punk, there were bucket loads. If you were into you know, art, jazz, freeform dance, praying mantis music, there were bands doing it. I mean, my favorite space rock Seattle band was uh, Sky Cries Mary. Okay. Well, my favorite this- kraut rock Seattle band was Hovercraft. Well, let's, <laughs> let's play this game. If you're into Nirvana, then listen to... Um, you are shorter like... Grave robbing. No. Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, Nirvana were fairly unique. Or how about this? If you're into Soundgarden, then you'd like... Alice in Chains. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. The, I mean, the other interesting thing, I think, is the bands that were good at what they did and actually broke through... Mm remained the best at what they did. If you look at all the little Nirvanas that followed on, yeah, none of them were as good as the real thing. And why would you listen to them, let alone mention their name? Right. When you could just go to the source. Yeah, I think of that awful band whose name I cannot remember, but they opened for the Stones on the Voodoo Lounge tour. Um, what do I call them? Oh, um, Temple of the Gossard Jets, Stone Temple Pilots. Oh. Yes, well, them. Yeah, they who, were like, they were almost post-grunge. They were, they were sort of, they weren't even post, they were like... They were at know, the end of the grunge era. They came, well, they came late, but they were so desperately trying to capture that grungy spirit. Right. And it didn't work and it wasn't at all convincing. And I've always believed that if you're going to be in a band, you have to be convincing. So wait, you they opened for the Stones? They opened for the Stones, yeah, at least in Seattle. Oh, I, didn't. Um, I was quite mortified that, oh God, I'm going to see this band. <laughs> <laughs> you could have arrived late, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's a Stones gig. You want to be there early so that you can like take in the atmosphere and look at the stage being warmed up and things. Were you? Did you regret at all that the the glam metal movement was destroyed? Were there any bands that you liked from that eighties, late eighties movement? <laughs> or no, I know I know you liked the early seventies glam. Eighties <clears throat> uh, glam bands that I liked. Um, Zero, right? Yeah, that's very, very... Yeah, I probably liked Zero. I heard they were good. Um, <laughs> no, I have never been a 
big metal fan, to be honest. Right. Um, yeah, when I was very, very small, and people like Sabbath and Purple. But this wasn't this wasn't really metal, was it? I mean, it was sort of. Well, it was. It wanted to be metal, but it was it pop was, that had metal guitars, guitar. right? Yeah, loud guitars and bizarre hair. Um, and, and so and, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with loud guitars. I'm fine with bizarre hair, but I don't like riffs. No, not when they're combined with. Oh, okay. Um, no, I mean, it was, and again, you know, we've already discussed sort of their standard lyrical content. <laughs> and I've always thought the band singing about rock you weren't and roll. Into, you weren't into cherry pie. I wasn't into people singing about their day job, <laughs> quite honestly. You know, if I was, a, I mean, I write, but I don't sort of walk around saying, I'm going to write, I'm on my typewriter all night. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't do that. And I don't see why bands would want to tell me they're going to rock and roll all night because, yes, that's your job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could jazz and bop all night as well, if you like. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, plumbers don't plumb hey, about Here's plumbing. a new book. How many bands have written a song about rock? <laughs> <sighs> Too many, including some that I really like, you know, like the, the Who, the Stones. Um, yes, I, most of them have done it, but it, it just seems something so redundant about it. Yeah, it got to the point where it was just like mailing it in. Yeah. Um, there was also, also that Joe Walsh song, was it Life's Been Good? And he's just yeah. singing about, you know, what he's done in his career that you haven't. And it's like, well, whoopee doo. Well, yeah, it's like we got five minutes to write a song. Yeah. To Living After Midnight. We're going <laughs> to rock and roll. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we have got off the topic of grunge, which I think was great, or Seattle. It was great because it, it de... Can I say bullshit on a podcast? Yeah, sure. A bugger I just did. Um, it de-bullshitted um, rock and roll for a time. Yeah. It did. And, you know, we needed that. N nothing had come along that was that excoriating since punk. So what's... And yeah, grunge it's... came along and it's just like, right, I've got a flamethrower, you have three seconds to leave the chart or else. It... And all these bands went eek and ran away. It was refreshing. Now we're waiting yeah. for the next refreshing thing. Uh, there won't be one. Rock for rock, not for <laughs> pop. For I rock. don't think there will be one. When the industry is not geared to a club scene or a genre scene, building at a grassroots level, as soon as a group raises its head above the parapet and says, oh, look, we've made a good record. Suddenly, they're the biggest thing ever, and everybody jumps on it because they're scared of being left behind. And the poor band is just, what do we do? We can't develop because everybody's watching us. We can't make mistakes. And they make rotten records instead. Hmm. And that's been going on for so long now. It's probably been going on as long as rock and roll existed before it started to happen. Very true. So it's now ingrained in our psyche that 
I saw a good band last night. They're the best thing ever, and they got to be on every newspaper. Which okay, is a dreadfully so, cynical thing to say, but... So travel to Seattle now. What's it like now? What's the scene? I haven't got a clue. I've not been back there in 15 years. Have you heard from people who are there? I've heard from people. It sounds very different. Um, when I got there, so we're talking 1991. It was still, it was a small city. It was self-contained. Uh, I say in the introduction that, you know, when the, when the mountains are closed by snow and the bridge is up, you, you know, the airport is fogged in. You are isolated. You know, it's there is nice. no way out. And now, you know, that's not the case because, you know, if nothing else, you know, we can escape electronically. Yes. Um, it was very isolated. You know, the buildings were, they all tended to be old red brick, crumbly. Um, shop fronts were shoddy looking. Chain mm. stores moved in, but they always looked really awkward. Mm. Um, it was very atmospheric and really quite exciting. And then as time went by, more, more and more people moved in from elsewhere. And I can't, you know, I can't complain about that because I was one of them. But then the tech companies came in and prices started to rise and these glass and steel things started to appear. Um, I think what summed it up for me was shortly before my wife and I moved away, a friend came up to visit from Bogota, Colombia which, you know, let's face it, is not renowned as one of the most sparkling, beautiful cities in the world. Right. And we were walking across the road and he turned to us and he said, I am so glad you are leaving this effing slum. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that really stuck with me because even though the slum conditions were caused by construction, and the displacement of the homeless and the closure of shops because rents were getting so high. Mm. Um, it really didn't feel like a cohesive city anymore. It felt like, it felt like a building site. Mm. And a lot of that has now been completed and friends will call and will say, you know, so how's things out there? And they'll say, oh, you know, they knocked down this and they've built that and there's, you know, tunnels under the city. And all I can think of is this series of books that came out, I think the early 2000s by this author named Cherie Priest called The Clockwork Century. And uh, the main conceit is Seattle was leveled by an earthquake. And at the bottom of the chasm, there is this gas that leaks out and turns everybody into zombies. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, as far as somebody writing something about their home city that is not very nice, I think yeah. she did a great job. It's like when um, H.G. Wells decided he hated Woking in South, London, South England, so he had it wiped out by Martians. Right. <laughs> what, um, what happened to the club scene? Um, rents went up... Um, 
less bands were around to play and keep the audience ticking over. Right. Um, you know, leases expired, they moved out. The Vogue is now a hairdresser, I believe. Mm. Um, Rock Candy was demolished, the Crocodile closed. They all closed, or a lot of them closed. Yeah. Or they moved to a new place that wasn't so centrally located. Reminds me of and, how I feel about New York City. It used to be a great place to go for clubs, especially in the early 80s. Like yeah. And now it's kind of like there's nothing there in Manhattan. Everything's in Brooklyn, if you want to experience that's it. A, that's a little harsh on New York City. The last time I was there, <laughs> there's so many places I could buy a cell phone case. Oh, yes. And next door, they sold bubble tea. And, and if you go to New York for cell phone cases, at every corner. yeah, um, and that's I think that's the other thing in Seattle is it, when we got there, it was there was bookshops everywhere, used bookshops, right. and you know, sue me, I love old books. Yeah. So we, you know, you walk around and it's like you trip over bookshops everywhere. But slowly the bookshops started to migrate out of the city or online to be replaced by coffee shops. Mm. And my feeling has always been, you could go out for a day, you could tour every bookshop, you could buy something in there and you, know, you would have you know, 100 books to read. If you did that with coffee shops, you'd be up all night in the loo. In the bathroom, sorry. So you didn't change from tea to coffee? Um, I've always drunk coffee. Really? Yeah. Wow. Um, even in England, um, I mean, I love tea, and I, you know, I drink, it, I drink it in the morning, and I have it in the afternoon. But because um, that's the kinks influence. But <laughs> yeah. I, I drink coffee. I drink coffee most of the day and night. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Even have a really great, you know coffee sauce in brooklyn funnily enough and it's not <clears throat> it's not starbucks no we <laughs> order i found this great place um seattle's best no they're called puerto rico <laughs> coffee company and they do you know bags of like hundreds of varieties of really good coffee reasonable prices you know Guys, sound like a commercial, don't I? Got your coffee here. But well, Seattle really had good. an influence on you in many ways. <laughs> yeah, we all, you know, we order like a month, six weeks worth of different coffees every six weeks, and uh, get through them very quickly. Well, guess what? You can now buy the Grunge Diaries in the Goldmine Store. Yes, that is. I'm so excited about that. Yeah. So people <clears throat> can click and read your store. stuff. People can read your articles and then click and, and buy your books. So that's cool. You also, <laughs> you also have a Donna Summer book. Maybe you want to talk a little about that as well. Yes. Um, it was strange. I wrote three books over a three-year period, um, pretty much a year apart. There was the Donna Summer one, which I'll get to in a moment. There was Grunge, and there was also a book with Jim McCarty, of the Yardbirds. Mm -hmm. And I think as a combination of COVID and probably COVID, they, they came out within six weeks of one another. Yep. And it's suddenly like, wow, that's strange. But the Donna Summer book, it's 
slightly misleading to call it a Donna Summer book, even though she's on the cover. Um, it's called I Feel Love, and it's the story of how that one song made such a huge difference to pop, rock, and electronica. Hmm. Um, and I trace, through the course of the book, I trace Donna's career, I trace Giorgio Moroda, the producer's career, of course. But I also wander into areas that were completely disparate, but which this song brought together, or that record brought together in the public mind. And suddenly electronics weren't just this thing that went woo 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 on 70s prog albums. They you know, could create a beat, they could create a rhythm, they could create a tune. Right. Um, so I bring all these things together and then just follow the song's career over the ensuing 30 years, which I hope doesn't sound dreadfully drab. Because no, the Goldmine readers love the analysis of songs, so I'm sure... Yeah, I actually found it quite... It's very entertaining to write because I was a, it was another of those instances like grunge where I was able to highlight artists who I did not feel ever got their fair crack of the whip and talk about their contributions to what we now listen to and think of as just normal. So there was a lot of that going in. And then there was just having fun with some of the awful cover versions and soundalikes and rip-offs that have come out over the years that want to be I Feel Love, but don't quite have that magic. And you know, I talk to people like Todd Rundgren, who said, I can't believe they had a hit with a noise I used to make in my bedroom. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a great remark. So it only has 19 words in it, and most of them are simply syllables. <laughs> I was like, go, Todd. <laughs> you know, Jim Kerr admitting that what destroyed their little punk band and made them form Simple Minds was hearing I Feel Love. Huh. Uh, the girls from Banana Rama, you know, they were 15, you know, 15, 16, they heard I Feel Love. It was like the greatest record. Um, I mean, all this just sort of coming together was, it was just so much fun putting it, doing it. Very cool. Well, thank you, Dave. Thank you. This is, we'll, I hope this is usable. We'll be on the, of course it is. You'll be on the <laughs> podcast again. And readers, yes. the new book is called The Grunge Diaries, Seattle, 1990 wow. to 1994. And you can get it in our bookstore, Goldmine Bookstore, shop.goldminemag.com. And right, you, didn't ask, you didn't ask why I ended in 1994. Well, I thought that was obvious, right? But go ahead. Because I ran out of, I ran out of space. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> the book had a certain length and I got to 1984 and I'd hit it. Um, the, my original intention was to do the entire decade. And? But it would have ended up the size of Manhattan phone directory. And you would have had to include Stone Temple Pilots. Yes, and I would probably still be writing it now. That 1914 place to end. I mean, Cobain's death obviously played a part in the end of the scene, but the scene was already on its way out. Yeah. 
So kind of um, how I saw it, like it really stopped midway through the nineties. And then you started getting a lot of these uh, hybrid rap metal bands and yeah. grunge copycats. Um, I mean, I knew it was over when Alternative Press, which was the magazine I was writing for, and this would have been in like 1993, um, stopped saying yes when I asked them if they wanted an interview with a local band and sent me off to talk to somebody from somewhere else. Uh, I, th I think the 90s were actually, you know, the first half of the 90s were really exciting because we had grunge and then growing up sort of alongside it, but outlasting it a little was Britpop. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And both, uh, both movements I really enjoyed, albeit for different reasons. Um, but I think that was sort of rock and roll's last true hurrah. And everything after that struck me as a little too either repetitive or redolent of something I'd already got. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Dave Thompson. Don't forget, listeners, to pick up the Grunge Diaries. You could pick it up at shop.goldminemag.com. That's where you could purchase the book. And also, don't forget to go to Barnes & Noble or Books A Million to pick up the new print edition. The print edition is always there every month. And you could also go to select record stores that carry it. Now also go to goldminemag.com to read exclusive content not in the print edition. Lots of columns, lots of interesting stuff, and collecting resources. Okay, this is Pat Prince. We'll see you next time on the Goldmine Podcast. 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later. 92% because of a bike? Not just bikes. We also make treadmills and rowers. Oh, let me guess, for elite athletes only, right? Nope. It doesn't matter if you're an avid exerciser or new to working out. Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it. So can you. Try Peloton bikes, tread or row, risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only. Not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com slash home dash trial. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.